that I've heard lots of anecdotal accounts of how even within the conservative constituency, there's a kind of disenchantment with the whole sort of religious rationale for a more illiberal, even authoritarian kind of government and society. And so there are, you know, lots of young women from conservative families who are choosing to unveil for complicated reasons. There is that secular expectation that as time passes, people will become more secular and less religious. That does seem to be playing out sociologically. You know, anthropologists look at things happening in Turkey or sociologists engaging in that sort of fine-grained kind of level of cultural analysis. How that translates into voting patterns seems to be very much minimal compared to the juggernaut of conservative nationalism, religious and secular alike, that carried the day in Turkey these past two weeks. And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. I feel like one of my tasks in these spiels for the podcast is to keep track a little bit with the rise and the supposed fall of populism around the world. There was some good reason for hope for a little while. We had two generally good pieces of news in the United States and in Brazil when Trump and Bolsonaro failed to get reelected. But we're now also starting to see signs that this was not as much of a beginning of a new trend as it may have appeared at the time. We saw Viktor Orban being relatively comfortably reelected in Hungary. We saw Recep Erdogan winning yet another turn in office in Turkey just a few days ago. That's what we'll be talking about in today's podcast. And there's an election coming up in Poland this fall, which is very significant. And there too, the signs for your opposition are not looking particularly promising. In the polls, the governing peace party is leading by a significant margin at the moment. There's also, in many of these cases, or in all of these cases, real attempts to undermine the extent to which these elections are free and fair. That is the case in Hungary, in which Orban controls the media and has been able to make changes to the electoral laws that really undermine the power of the opposition. That was the case in Turkey, where Imamolu, a more charismatic opposition candidate, was not chosen in part because of fears that he would be stopped from running. And that story may now be repeating in Poland, where the government dominated by the Law and Justice Party has pushed through a deeply controversial law that institutes a commission looking into supposed Russian influence on the Polish government during the period in which the opposition leader, Donald Tusk, was prime minister of the country. Uh, this commission is going to have a partisan composition, and it will have the power to bar anybody from running for public office for a period of 10 years. In short, it is likely to be a means to exclude key opposition politicians, perhaps include Tusk himself, from being able to run in parliamentary elections this coming fall. That should put to rest any notion that elections in Poland are continuing to be free and fair. And yet, as in Turkey and in Hungary, it may lead to a situation where a government re-elected in an unfair manner can continue to draw legitimacy from this 
quasi-democratic elections in which it was confirmed. The challenge to democracy from these authoritarian populist movements continues to be very severe. My guest today is Nora Fischer-Owner. I have known Nora for many years since we taught at a summer school together in Istanbul about 10 years ago. Nora is now an associate professor of international studies at the University of San Francisco, and she's also been a fellow at the German Marshall Fund and written for the Washington Post and Foreign Affairs and other publications. We talked about the elections in Turkey, trying to understand why it is that Recep Erdogan was re-elected despite the weakness in the Turkish economy, despite the government's bungled response to the devastating earthquake earlier this year. We talked about what it is that binds voters to populist candidates like Recep Erdogan. We discussed whether the country is a democracy, a competitive authoritarian regime, a semi-competitive authoritarian regime, or perhaps, as I ended up suggesting in the conversation, a case of Schrödinger's democracy. We talked about the outlook for Turkey in political, economic, and diplomatic terms, and we discussed the reasons for the weakness of democracy in the Muslim world and its likely future. Nora, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So this was the time that everybody was very hopeful that the opposition might finally be able to displace Erdogan from power. The polls seemed to be indicating, at least before the first round, that Erdogan might lose. The Turkish economy has been in very bad shape because of hyperinflation. The government bungled its response to the terrible earthquake that shook Turkey recently. And yet Erdogan ended up winning a majority in parliament and in the second round being elected as president. What happened? Yeah, that's a, a great question and one that a lot of people are asking themselves. I think in the build-up to the first round, expectations were high on the part of the opposition for the reasons you mentioned. The sorry state of the economy, hyperinflation, a country that's teetering on the brink of a current accounts crisis. And so, you know, if it's the economy stupid, if that's the answer to how people vote, if that's the driving cause for how people vote, then the opposition should have won. If it's about the government response to the earthquakes from outside the earthquake region, the intuitive assumption would have been that there would be, have been a price to pay for having both watched some of the initial um, responses on the ground in the face of the tragedy, and also because the brand of the government really is sort of deconstruction government. You know, Erdogan is the construction guy who has built Turkey up, literally railroads and highways and skyscrapers and all sorts of big infrastructural projects that that's his trademark. And so when these failed spectacularly in the earthquake zone, one would have assumed, looking from outside, that there would be a price to pay. But it turns out that voters are receptive to identity politics. Voters are receptive to fear-mongering. 
And voters are receptive to the information environments in which they find themselves. And in this case, you had a media environment that was very, very heavily stacked in favor of the incumbent president. You had a information environment and a relief environment on the ground in, say, the earthquake zone, where Erdogan and his team were seen as being more likely to be able to provide post-quake reconstruction in a more credible uh, way than the opposition. And so those assumptions fell through. And then there's a number of questions about polling per se that we could um, jump into. Polling is a science in general, seems to be facing a lot of challenges when confronted with populist politicians and their ability to rally folks around the flag as the populists see it. And so the opposition was both sorely disappointed by the first round, also because they had set expectations very high. And so there had been a lot of attention within the country and outside of the country regarding these elections, and there had been very high hopes. And so the opposition went into the second round quite demoralized. Yeah, and it seems that when there was a sort of important hinge moment where on the night of the first round of the election, the opposition did not communicate very effectively and that hampered its ability to campaign in the following two weeks. It sort of accepted the narrative that it was going to lose in any case, even for the ultimate outcome of a runoff was quite close. So there's two questions here, right? I mean, one is about why did polls mispredict what happened? And that's sort of the less interesting question, because as you're pointing out, we've seen this in a number of circumstances now. The more substantive question is, you know, why is it that Erdogan has remained not very broadly popular, since there's clearly a very significant portion of the Turkish population, nearly 50% concentrated in the cities and the more secular affluent parts of society that deeply oppose him and deeply dislike him. But he does seem to have about 52% of the population that stays with him. And I agree with you about the unfair media environment about some of those realities on the ground. All of that helps to explain how this was somewhat free, but certainly not a fair election. But I still want to understand the appeal of Erdogan in a deeper way. I don't think we're quite getting at it just by saying people fall for this kind of identity politics or whatever. There's clearly a more profound set of reasons for what makes Erdogan appealing. So what's your best attempt at the sort of positive case, not in the sense that you agree with it, not in the sense that I agree with it, but from within the perspective of a voter for Erdogan, you know, what is the reason to vote for him, even if they're aware of hyperinflation, even if they, you know, might blame his government for some mistakes in construction and so on, you know, what binds so many voters to Erdogan despite all of these other things? It's a great question. It's an important one. And it invites us to look at also the map of Turkey that you just evoked, where you have coastal areas and then also the southeast region, much of which is landlocked, but is predominantly Kurdish. And that is also a part of the country that voted heavily for the opposition. And so, you know, the Erdogan strongholds are really in central Anatolia and the Black Sea region. And these are places that are culturally very conservative. So that's part of his appeal. He's perceived as very charismatic and sort of the ultimate patriarch, in a way, in a patriarchal cultural context where religious nationalism and secular nationalism, and it was really the secular nationalists who pushed him over the edge and got him from the under the 50% bar that he was at 
in the first round up to the 52% he needed to carry the elections. That was actually votes lent from the ultra-nationalist secular right in Turkey. And so these regions are parts of the country that were underserved in the early years of the Republic. They felt left out, particularly the religious constituencies, felt left out by the Western-facing modernist secularist project. And Erdogan has very self-consciously curated an image, a larger-than-life persona, as someone who is the everyman, but also almost like the demigod. You know, he kind of embodies the aspirations and sensibilities of this conservative Anatolian grouping that, as you note, is just over half the population of the country. You're invoking one kind of deep history, right, which is the history of these sultans and whose image Erdogan is in some way presenting himself, right? I mean, making Turkey great again and in some ways making Islam within Turkey great again by appealing to that kind of political tradition. That also needs a foil, though, right? And I wonder whether there is also an element of slightly less deep history, but still quite deep history, helping to explain what fuses Erdogan's electorate to him. Turkey was ruled since Ataturk in a secular way that has made Turkey a successful and modern nation in many ways, but that did also exclude religious people from full participation in public in ways that you know were deeply offensive to them. And that, by the way, from a perspective of a philosophical liberal, did, I think, fall short of the kinds of rights that people can and should expect, right? So women who were veiled in particular were not able to attend public universities, were not able to, I think, sometimes go to public hospitals, if I'm remembering right. You know, the first veiled female members of parliament were jeered in very aggressive ways. So to what extent is Erdogan's ability to invoke this kind of history and to sustain the support of his electorate despite all of his empirical failings in the last years, a testament to the sort of lasting way in which those mistakes of Turkey's previous settlement have just, you know, alienated 40-something percent of the population in a deep way that perhaps it will take generations to overcome. Yeah, no, I think that's a really great point. It fed very directly into some of the campaign messaging that we saw. The idea that, you know, now very much displaced from the governing elite, but the idea that these sort of pro-secularist cadres who've been kind of running the republic from an ivory tower ever since they anti-democratically constituted Turkey as a secularist westernist project, you know, that is a narrative that runs strongly through the president's story, is, is a strong storyline. Something that you know he specifically was telling young women: if you were born in Turkey in 2000, millennia, right? You literally have not had another leader besides Erdogan. You cannot remember anyone else. But he made a very active point of reminding young conservative women that up until 2000, they would have been barred from entering universities. And so there were interviews with, you know, young women who are supporters of Erdogan, who were saying, you know, if there's veiled women today who are, you know, lawyers and pharmacists and doctors and judges, then it's thanks to him. So he very explicitly, the idea that he's kind of the champion of the underdog and he's the writer of wrongs and that 
the sort of conservative moral majority, as it were, of Anatolia will, you know, find in him their defender. I mean, this layers on to in sort of uh, Islamic idiom in a more sort of theological way. It layers on to a sort of commitment to serving justice. You know, what in the United States, we talk about freedom a lot. In Muslim cultural context, the mobilizing idea is justice. And so this idea that he is out there to defend the just majority from persecution, even though in practice, as you said, empirically, this supposedly peripheral population is actually quite empowered now. And they have been running the country for 20 years now. Did the opposition do enough to undermine the power of that narrative and to make more conservative and more religious, more devout voters feel safe? in its hands. I know that when Imamolu won the mayoral elections in Istanbul, there was a number of articles arguing that a part of his success was his deliberate decision to go and campaign in front of mosques, for example, and to show his respect towards more religious citizens of the city of Istanbul, to show that they didn't need to be afraid of him as mayor of the city, but he did not look down on them. That struck me as very convincing at the time. Did the opposition do that and it just wasn't enough? Or did it not do enough of that this time around? I think it was a combination of the two. First of all, they were kind of um, hobbled at the beginning because Imam Ola was basically effectively forbidden from running for office. So um, back in December, when the current mayor of Istanbul, Ekrem Mamola, who has defeated Erdogan-backed candidates for the mayorship back in 2018 and sort of big historic elections that were part of what, you know, got everyone in the opposition so excited, you know, he did indeed sort of launch a very inclusive campaign that kind of tried to bridge conservative Democrats with more pro-secular Democrats and Democrats from, you know, different minority religious or ethnic groups, as well as really kind of appeal to secular-oriented women who feel very vulnerable in the current context in Turkey. So he really had this sort of broad tent and he was charismatic and was able to kind of project that inclusive messaging in a successful way. Um, that is why in December he was confronted with some charges. He spent a few days in jail and allegations of criminal activity that are, you know, not very convincing. My understanding was that it was sort of some form of libel, that it was based on political speech, or was there accusations of actual criminal? I have to revisit that, but it was based on political speech, but the nature of the charges were criminal charges, I do believe. But just to make it clear, it wasn't that he was accused of bribery or of robbery or something like that. The thing he's been accused of was that some of the things he said had insulted the president or had in some other way fallen afoul of these very restrictive laws relating to speech in Turkey. Yes, there were political charges and the impact was political because therefore he wasn't able to put forth his candidacy because there was going to be a democracy sword hanging over his head because at any time he could be shut down. And if he were to then be shut down, he would also lose the mayorship, right, of Istanbul, which is a huge city, larger than many European countries in terms of its population and vast budgetary resources, you know, compared to the rest of the country. So they needed to keep him in office in Istanbul, which meant that basically Erdogan managed to tee up a weaker, less charismatic candidate who gave it a good run. And honestly, in Turkey, to be able to pull 47%, almost 48% of this kind of very polarized, very diverse electorate together under this message, it's not just the anti-Erdogan campaign. It does have to do with some really fascinating messaging 
They came out of Callisto Lindahl position campaign. They tried to create a safe space for a lot of people who feel beleaguered or threatened by the rising conservative majoritarianism that we see in the Erdogan camp. And so I think, you know, given the very restricted playing field and the very uneven electoral playing field, the messaging was what buoyed the hopes so intensively for the opposition, you know, going in. It's what created those expectations. So I think I don't think the messaging was problematic. I think the demographics and and the institutions and the media environment deflated the message's impact and sort of compressed the ability to convert that effective message into the desired electoral outcome. And then, of course, by the second round, then it all went bust because in order to try and pull the extra 5% of the vote that Kostarola needed to carry him into the presidential office, he had to turn around and cater to very hardline, ultra-nationalist, ultra-anti-immigrant, anti-refugee sentiment, and that disappointed the people who'd been supporting this more inclusive campaign all along in some regards. And this is a basic kind of structural challenge in Turkish politics, which was reflected in the elections of the first round, where Erdogan got, you know, 49-something percent. And then Kilis Darolu, the main opposition candidate, got something like 45 percent. And the remaining 5 percent went to this secular ultranationalist. And so effectively, the opposition in Turkey has to unite the Kurdish vote the vote of mainstream secular society, and then these secular ultranationalists. And that's a balancing act that is incredibly hard to maintain. And it sounds like the opposition wasn't able to do that, at least this time around. You talked a little bit about demographics in your last answer. And I'm always fascinated by the persistent idea in so many countries that the future will make the electorate more progressive and more secular and more tolerant and all of those things. And somehow it never seems to happen. I mean, you know, certainly in Western European countries, to some extent North America, the left has hoped for 70 years that, you know, young people are so much more progressive and just give it 10 years and finally we'll be in the majority. And somehow it never seems to materialize. How does that narrative play out in Turkey? Is there this idea that young people are going to be more progressive and secular and that they will be more skeptical of people like Erdogan? And has that been disappointed? Or does that idea not exist in the first place? No, I think it does. It very much exists. And I think it was more or less true. I think uh, on balance, I haven't looked at the numbers closely. So this is an intuition based on following the contest and the debates, you know, and the build up to all these things. So I have to look at the numbers more closely. But I believe 8% of the electorate were first time youth voters. And my assumption is that they skewed towards the opposition. There's a lot of frustration among young people in Turkey right now because of the economic situation, because their job prospects are bleak. Young people want to grow. They're expansive. They have energy and they find themselves in a shrinking economy in a world that is also kind of closing off against them. So I think in anticipation that there might be a huge exodus of people trying to leave Turkey from those who feel disenfranchised by these election results, visa regimes have been tightening very intensely around the country. So it's much harder to get out than it was even a couple of months ago. And so I think, you know, young people are frustrated and many of them did vote for the opposition. And I think the opposition campaign up until the first round did appeal to a lot of young voters. I don't know if that's a full answer to the question, right? Because it's certainly true in Britain, for example, in Germany to a lesser extent, in other European countries, that young people vote more for the left than old people. And that was true 50 years ago or 25 years ago as well. 
And yet somehow the passage of 50 years hasn't led to the left being in power everywhere, quite on the contrary. So, you know, the demographic pattern that younger people tend to vote more for the left often seems to hold, but for whatever series of processes, it seems that, you know, the arrival of more progressive young people into the population doesn't rival the pace or is only about equal to the pace with which people become more conservative as they age. And so there's this sort of perpetual illusion that because young people are more progressive in the American context or more secular, perhaps in the Turkish context, somehow that means that in 25 years, the basic demographic facts are going to be different. But that doesn't seem to turn out to be the case. So I hear you, are we kind of chasing the mirage, you know, putting these hopes in sort of young people's progressive vision, translating into some sort of long-term shift in our political cultures and voting patterns. So it's a great question and it's definitely one to think about in comparative perspective. You know, I think in the case of Turkey, and I think this is probably also true in Europe and the United States and other contexts as well. One thing that young people really do have a bit of a different angle on is, I think, gender and sexuality as issues where they skew much more progressive than the older generation. And it remains to be seen whether those attitudes will continue moving forward. When you look at the way that Erdogan's coalition, you know, really tried to demonize and weaponize a fear of queers, part of the campaign in quite absurd ways, sort of like a queer boogeyman, you know, running around threatening to take over Anatolia was figured very much into the campaign speech. I don't think young people ate that up. Again, it would be interesting to do more kind of in-depth research and get out on the ground and kind of speak with people. But I've heard lots of anecdotal accounts of how even within the conservative constituency, there's a kind of disenchantment with the whole sort of religious rationale for a more illiberal, even authoritarian kind of government and society. And so there are, you know, lots of young women from conservative families who are choosing to unveil for complicated reasons. There is that secular expectation that as time passes, people will become more secular and less religious. That does seem to be playing out sociologically. You know, anthropologists look at things happening in Turkey or sociologists engaging in that sort of fine-grained kind of level of cultural analysis. How that translates into voting patterns seems to be very much minimal compared to the juggernaut of conservative nationalism, religious and secular alike, that carried the day in Turkey these past two weeks. Let's think a little bit about what now lies in store for Turkey. Um, The first question is about the democratic institutions in the country. They're already very weakened. The scope for free speech is very restricted. Many people were arrested, including journalists and government bureaucrats in the last years. You know, is it still meaningful to speak about Turkey as a democracy? On the one hand, the outcome of these elections seemed to matter. On the other hand, the underlying conditions were so unfair that the playing field is so skewed that it's not clear we should call it democracy. And I always wondered whether we really have the proof of what would have happened if Erdogan had lost, which is to say that it makes sense for all of these authoritarian populist regimes to run elections as long as they are able with all of the background skewing of a playing field, to win them. Because then they can say, I'm the democratically elected leader. That doesn't mean that at the moment in which they do lose an election, they can't refuse to abide by its outcome. And we know in the Turkish context that that is what Erdogan did when Imamoglu first won the mayoral election in Istanbul. Those results were thrown out by an electoral commission which is dominated by Erdogan's loyalists. And then they had a second round or a redo of the election 
which Imamalu won by an even greater margin. At that point, Erdogan Redis gave up because it was only Istanbul. I know that Istanbul was very significant, but it wasn't the national government. It wasn't his own power that he was giving up. So how do we know that if Erdogan had lost, he actually would have gone? And more importantly now, that if he should lose in five years, he would be willing to go. Do we know that there is still, even in this imperfect sense, a semblance of democracy in Turkey? Or has this just become a sham which serves the government and they'll go on keeping up this illusion until the day that we lose an election and then, you know, the truth of it emerges that actually it's a dictatorship and the elections aren't able to send some like Erdogan home from the presidential palace in which he has lived for a very long time at this stage? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a fair question. So the Organization for Security and Economic Cooperation in Europe, they send out election observers, people to monitor the polls and follow the you know press debate, produce a full report at the end of an election cycle uh, to let the world know whether in the assessment of these professional monitors, elections were free and fair. Um, so if you look at the reports from both the first round and the second round, they very clearly state that election day was more or less free, the buildup to the elections was unfair. And so there was a meaningful political choice on election day. People more or less were able to go to the polls and vote um, unencumbered, although there are some reported you know, irregularities and a couple of disturbing incidents, uh, but nothing that these international observers or the opposition parties have really aggressively contested. So, you know, in that sense, electoral democracy is really deeply rooted in Turkey's political culture. The Turks have been going to the polls uh, since the 1950s, you know, levels of participation that are very enviable from a United States perspective, where we have such a hard time getting people out to vote. So in that sense, it's a really meaningful institution, a really meaningful part of the culture. And I do believe that Erdogan sincerely believes in the majoritarian electoral mandate that he gets when he secures election. You know, I don't think it's superficial, but as the political system evolves from being, you know, first we were talking illiberal democracy, and then the buzzword was competitive authoritarianism. I was writing an op-ed about this stuff yesterday, and I was playing with the idea of semi-competitive authoritarianism. And once you start going down that slippery spoke, you know, how much of this is just actually Potemkin democracy, like the Potemkin villages where you kind of put on a big show, but it's really hollow behind. And I think that that's where a lot of the frustration and disappointment of the Turkish opposition electorate uh, lies in the days after the first round and especially after the second round, just kind of wondering, is my vote really just a rubber stamp for a Potemkin democracy that is manned by a dictator who's been around for 20 years and will probably be around for another 20? So that question is, I think, very much kind of eating at the souls of a lot of folks on the ground in Turkey. But at the end of the day, a vote is better than not having a vote. So I've seen some commentators say, you know, stop using elections to legitimize these authoritarian regimes. It's actually serving them. You're helping giving them a green light and legitimacy in the international space. But you can't take the vote away from a people when that's really the most important participatory mechanism that they have right now. Well, it may also be the mechanism for contesting unjust rule eventually, right? I mean, when I observe these systems... I do start to have very serious doubts about whether elections will ever directly bring about a change of a government. And I wonder whether we're naive in thinking that Erdogan would have gone if he'd ended up with 49% of a vote rather than 52% of a vote. But of course, if he did end up having 49% of a vote, 
And he would either have to resort to straightforwardly falsifying the outcome or to having an electoral commission cancel its outcome, as he did in the first round of elections in Istanbul a number of years back. Then that would be a natural moment of mobilization in which you can have forms of protest and so on to say, hey, you're robbing us of our vote. And that can make splits appear between hardliners and softliners within the regime and all the kinds of things that often happen when dictatorships fall. I certainly don't think I would advise your position to sit out the elections, because as you're saying, there is enough space for contestation that is not a meaningless act. But I do wonder whether it is knowable at this point whether there is still a democracy. You came up with semi-competitive authoritarian, which I think is quite good. Potemkin democracy is one way of seeing it as we really think democracy has already gone. I'm toying, as I'm discussing this with you, I just came up with this idea, with Schrodinger's democracy, right? Like Schrodinger's cat. We don't know whether the cat is alive or dead. It's not clear to me. I think actually this is Schrodinger's democracy in Turkey and in Hungary and a number of other countries. We don't know until the incumbent loses whether the democratic mechanism, even in an imperfect way, is still present or not. I think it's a brilliant idea. And when you think about context, you know, for example, like local politics is an avenue to try and to meaningfully challenge kind of power structures at the national level that seem almost insurmountable. By way of comparison, if you look at some place like Jerusalem, right, there's the Palestinian community in Jerusalem actually has the right to run for local office for the mayoral office when they choose to sit it out or several other divided societies. You have spaces where people say the system is rigged against me. Therefore, I'm not going to participate in the system. But that's just depending on, again, where you stand vis-a-vis the democratic cat. That seems also defeatist before, you know, you even... I guess my sense would be that where you have Schrodinger's democracy, you should run. Because A, there is a chance that it still is a democracy and the incumbent would leave if they lose a vote. And B, the fact that you might superficially win before the electoral committee, you know, commission cancels the vote, or that you might force the incumbent to falsify the electoral count in very obvious ways would then provide this mobilizing opportunity. Where I start to be more sympathetic to opposition movements urging a boycott of elections is where the democracy is not showing as democracy, it really is quarter competitive authoritarian regime, where you just know what the outcome of a vote is. And then the fact that there is an opposition party and you know, some words the opposition party seems to legitimize the outcome at some international level, even for anybody who knows something about the country knows there's just no way the opposition is going to win. Let me ask you a question about the economy in Turkey. We've seen this very steep inflation in the last months and last year or so, and you know, worries about the inflationary spiral accelerating even further. And of course, since the markets don't trust Erdogan particularly, as we know from the fact that polls that had him trailing sent the stock markets up, and when he overperformed in the first round, I believe the stock markets went down, is he going to change course on his economic policy in such a way that he might be able to bring this under control? Or can we now expect, or should we at least fear, that Turkey is going to experience an even steeper economic decline over the coming years? So, yeah, I think in, in a way, it's a, it's a nice way to link what we were talking about earlier. You know, 52% is not a landslide, right? 52% after two rounds of really intensive campaigning is not a carte blanche to do anything that you want. And so the economy is clearly there as one of the big issues that is 
looming over voters' minds, that's looming over the government, that's looming over you know anyone engaged in Turkey economically, diplomatically, in any context. And so I think there's a chance that we'll see, had the mandate been more, maybe Erdogan would have interpreted it as more of a vindication of his unorthodox economic choices. But I think now that he's secured another five years, although he does have an eye on the municipalities, so there are going to be municipal elections next year that he's going to be strategizing for. In this context, I think we may see a little bit of a break on some of the economic populism that he was engaging, you know, in the build-up to elections. And the cabinet's going to be announced by Friday. There's signals that he may be bringing back Mehmet Şipşek, who's a former minister of the economy, is very well respected in global financial circles. And there's very clear warning signals from markets and global financial observers that if he doesn't, then Turkey's in big trouble. So the lira went up to to 20.4 lira to the dollar. 10 years ago, it was under 2 lira to the dollar. This is like more than 90% devaluation of your currency vis-a-vis the dollar. It's crazy. It's It's helpful for exporters, but that's about it. So I think, you know, that pain is really widely felt in Turkey. And he has a little bit of a breather now. So I do think that we may see some more orthodox economic policies coming out of the government. That being said, we've already seen many, many examples of Erdogan interfering in financial conversations that are typically not the purview of the head of state. And so he certainly is a micromanager and may attempt to micromanage again. Um, But I expect to see some more restraint and some more reversion to some more orthodox economic policies soon. Coming back to the mandate point, I think um, on almost all fronts in foreign policy, economic policy, the mandate is not huge enough that he's going to pursue anything radically, radically different on any other front or radically destabilizing. So I was going to come to the question of foreign policy. You know, Turkey has been a member of Western Alliance for a long time. It's been a member of NATO for a long time. It used to be that there was a very secular military in the country, which had an ambivalent role to play, including being responsible for a good number of coups, but that saw itself as the guarantor of Turkey's place within that Western alliance. Erdogan, over his 20 years of rule, has significantly weakened Turkey, remains a member of NATO, but the relationship between Turkey and Western European countries in the United States is probably as poor as it has been in many decades. And there are real questions about when that relationship is going to come to its breaking point. What do you expect to happen on that front in the next five or 10 years? So, yeah. So first, I want to say something about this idea of sort of the secularist military in Turkey, because I think that's a little bit of a misperception that people have had for a long time. That's been part of the narrative that we've had about Turkey for, you know, 20, 30 years. But since the 1980s, really, the Turkish army has very actively promoted the type of ethno-religious nationalism that prevailed this week in Turkey. They called it the Turkish Islamic synthesis. Maybe today's, I've written about this, I call it Turkish Islamist synthesis 2.0. So there's more of an emphasis on the religious part at the religious nationalism rather than the ethnic part. But at the end of the day, there's a lot of convergence in this particular military vision that, you know, sees Kurdish aspirations as an existential challenge that recognizes the complexities of Turkey's neighborhood and that has for a long time now had one eye on Moscow, even at the same time as there is an eye on Brussels and an eye on Washington, D.C. So Turkey has been playing this balancing role and there's been, you know, members of the army leadership who have been 
been kind of Eurasianist in orientation for some time now. And the folks who lent the winning vote to Erdogan, that 2.5% more that he needed to win, the Sinan Oan, the, the third presidential candidate who eventually sided with Erdogan and pulled about half of his votes with him, he's trained in Moscow. So I think that we're going to see more of this a la carte type of geopolitics working in many ways organically and closer with Moscow and with Putin than even previously. And Putin gave Erdogan a number of favors in the context of these elections, including stuff regarding debt payments and helping him to kind of keep that economic populist handouts coming into the elections. But I also think Erdogan has shown himself repeatedly to be a foreign policy pragmatist. And in a way, it just comes back to that genealogy, right? That Ottoman inheritance. The Ottoman Empire was called the sick man of Europe for its last 100, 150 years or so. But it actually outlived. The person who coined the term sick man of Europe was the Russian czar. And the Ottoman emperor actually in his, his dynasty actually outlived the czar's dynasty by a couple of years. So Turkey, because of its location, is really good at playing that risk board of, you know, pivoting between different geopolitical poles, different geocultural centers of gravity. And I think we can expect to see more of that. And that's probably a sign of our times in the world more broadly. We're looking at a more complicated risk board when it comes to foreign policy in general. And in that sense, I think that the sort of a la carte approach that Erdogan has been pursuing the past few years, we're likely to see more of that. When I think about the last, you know, at this point, 15 or so years, there's been this great arc of hope and disappointment in democracy in Turkey, but also actually in democracy in other parts of the Muslim world. When Erdogan was first elected, many people saw him as a figure of hope who would fully democratize this country in part by integrating more devout Muslims more fully into a system from which they were in part excluded. Those hopes have been quite thoroughly dashed. Then a few years later, we got the Arab Spring with great hopes of democracy in Egypt and Tunisia and elsewhere. And at this point, the last remaining democracy that resulted from the Arab Spring in Tunisia has quite firmly become authoritarian. And so when you look around the world today, there's not many examples of even demi-democracy left in the Muslim world. I think the best examples I've been able to come up with in my mind as I was thinking about this after the disappointments in Yemen as well are, you know, Pakistan, Indonesia, Malaysia, all of which are more properly defined as competitive authoritarian regimes, perhaps. I mean, I think in the case of Indonesia and Malaysia, you can make a case. But that is a pretty thin crop. There's obviously some people who jump to the conclusion that somehow democracy is incompatible with the Muslim world. I assume that you disagree with that. But why has it been so hard for democracies to take root in that part of the world? And how hopeful are you that that might change in the course of the coming decades? It's a very sort of broad brush, right? All of these different countries and political systems and their various you know, engagements with democracy and democracy building over the past decades. And what is it, you know, what does it mean looking forward? So in a nutshell, I mean, I think there's, there's a couple of things we have to unpack, right? In order to do justice to such a big question. So sort of one basket of things I would look at would be things that are kind of specific to the experiences of the Muslim majority Middle East. So I'm not going to go to Malaysia or Indonesia because, you know, I don't know that I have the knowledge base to really kind of speak to that. 
But in the modern Middle East, you know, there's some factors at play that are kind of specific to the region that you have to take into account when you explain the democratic deficit. And then I think we have to avoid the trap of kind of exceptionalizing um, the region because a lot of the problems that we're encountering, you know, are really kind of examples of just right-wing populism and the liberal turn and the way that voters in European context and, you know, North and South American context, you know, are also being led down the same sort of path that folks in Turkey and Tunisia have been led down. So I think we also have to think a second basket of causes at play of things that are kind of more universal, more universal trend at place. So on the specific side, you know, you have legacies of, I mean, in a nutshell, there's People talk about colonial legacies a lot in the region. People talk about the impact of kind of capitalism impacting the region in uneven ways. You know, but one source, to be honest, of the region's problems, you can't pin everything on it. You can't blame everything on it. But one source of the democratic deficit has been that Western partners of the region want stability, right? Strong men are better providing stability. We've seen, you know, weaker opposition candidates who can bring together a really diverse, you know, electoral coalition, but, you know, can't make it across the final threshold of these presidential elections. And so in a way, there's kind of a default preference that's not mentioned a lot, but in the West for having stable interlocutors, Preferably from a Western perspective, you want a secular, stable leader to, you know, rule, rule the space. Um, but if you can't have that, or if it's a particularly egregious secular leader, then you are open to a religious strong leader to carry these spaces. And so it's a two-way street. So I do think we have to read the region's sort of democratic deficit in the context of this long history of quite structurally uneven and problematic relations with the West. Nora, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please make suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com that's goodfightpod at gmail.com this recording carries a creative commons 4.0 international license thanks to silent partner for their song chess pieces (laughs) 